The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your dread pirate Roberts of details, your six-fingered men of minutia, your inconceivables of inanity, your very own personal R.O.U.S.'s, recounters of unusual stories. <laughs> My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And you killed our fathers. Prepare to die. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to. Yeah. kind of worked. Yeah. Well, folks, today, if you haven't figured it out, we are talking about The Princess Bride. Truly, I'd have to say one of the most beloved films of our lifetime. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's an overused cliche to say a movie has something for everyone, but this one truly does. It's thrilling, but lighthearted. Funny, but I've also shed a tear. It goes down easy when you're a kid, but there's more than enough meat for adults. There's romance, adventure, fantasy. There's swashbuckling, whatever that is. <laughs> you said that like it was a Jewish meal. Yeah, I did. <laughs> swashbuckling there we go and then there's also the guy who played columbo there's the kid who played kevin arnold in the wonder years there's robin wright there's wallace sean there's billy crystal there's andre the freaking giant mm. all written by the guy who wrote butch cassidy and the sundance kid and directed by meathead from all in the family mm -hmm. where else i ask you are you gonna get that kind of lineup nowhere in the damn world that's for sure mm. I have nothing especially intelligent to say about this movie. Nope. I remember enjoying it as a kid, and my memories of it remain pure. And honestly, that's kind of the highest compliment I can pay a piece of pop culture. Yep. Heigl, what do you think? Just a great film. Just a great, solid... If you like... No notes. If you don't, it's the, it's the, the Ricky Bobby, if you don't chew Big Red, <laughs> you. If you don't like the Princess Bride, <laughs> you. Yeah, I don't know, yes, how, I don't know how I don't know how empty or dead inside you'd have to be to not enjoy this film. I mean, it's uh I guess more than me apparently, and I'm a pretty I'm pretty dry <laughs> I'm pretty dried up. <laughs> um yeah, it it hits on every level. It's well written by one of the greatest yeah. to ever to do it. Uh nobody's, you know, going Daniel Day-Lewis, but everybody's <laughs> likable and charming and well cast and it pacing's great. 
Uh, it's not doing like especially dizzying or virtuosic camera work, but it's also not like inert or flat. It's got production design that's good but doesn't distract. Uh, good practical it, effects. Yeah, moves along at a good clip. And yeah, man, no notes. I, I, if anything, when I balked a little when you pitched it, is just because I like when BuzzFeed started to reach critical mass in like 2013, 2014, I just started blanching every time I would see this come up in their like quiz and like listicle and gif roundup, endless gray slurry of content that they were serving and still do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's just because it's a great movie. Because it's so damn good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love movies that make fun of a genre while also being wildly successful of that genre. Yes. I think Shaun of the Dead yeah. is another one of those. Like, yeah. it makes fun of horror movies, but it's genuinely scary at points. This What we do in the, the shadows. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. The Princess Bride is a traditional classic love story told in the classic tradition of fairy tale storytelling, yet it also makes fun of all that. And it reminds me of Shrek also in the fact that it's this very self-aware, self-effacing fantasy. And maybe Patinkin, who played the immortal Nigo Montoya, had a great line when describing uh, a piece of directorial advice from the movie's auteur, Rob Reiner. He said that Rob told him, what I really want the actors to do in this movie is act as though they're holding their poker cards in their hand, but they're just hiding one card. <laughs> and according to Mandy, this one card was the twinkle in our eye. The one card was the fun we knew was underneath everything we were saying. There was always a little secret, and that secret was the fun. I thought that was great. I love yeah. that. I think that's a great way to sum up the kind of the wink that's being done by every character in this movie, but not in an annoying way. Yeah, nobody's mugging. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, TikTok star, Mandy Patankin. Oh, is he on TikTok He's now? huge on TikTok, yeah. Just for really? like... What's he do? He just bumbles around his house with his wife and like puts in shelving. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> super normcore stuff, but the, he's beloved. I really, after reading about him for this episode, I really, really like him. I, I mean, that's the other thing. Everybody in this movie, really with no exceptions, I think, is so insanely likable. Yeah. Like, both as their character and the actor themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, no one's, no one's canceled yet. I mean, <laughs> you know. Who comes the closest? Wallace Shawn? Probably just for being a dick to fans constantly yeah, about it. But, yeah. Uh, I was going to say Robin Wright by virtue of being married to Sean Penn for his life. But, you know, that wasn't her fault. <laughs> she just brushed up against a, a bad person. There's a, I started experimenting for this other show that I'm working on involving all sorts of AI crap. And there's like voice modulators out there now that can turn your voice into dozens and dozens of celebrities and one of them is sean penn and i was very nearly going to call you as sean penn from a restricted number and pretend <laughs> that he was still mad about whatever it was you wrote about him at people that got him so pissed off and then i said he wasn't a journalist yes 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 yeah, yeah. i didn't do that because i didn't want to spike your heart rate that much I, I think i'm on the right side of history there yeah uh well from a physics-sized pile of delightful stories about andre the giant to the insane lengths Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin went through to nail their immortal sword fight, to the depths of emotion Patinkin brought to his classic fight to avenge his father, here's everything you didn't know about the Princess Bride. Whenever you say pile and, like, describe it by size, you're really only ever talking about one thing, I feel like. <laughs> Eh, you know, we get into the scatological a little bit later on. 
Uh, uh, a little te- little teaser for the for the for that for that weird corner of our fan base. <laughs> Keep yours out, fans. <laughs> the film version of The Princess Bride is based on the book of the same name by William Goldman. And if you are a film buff, you are certainly familiar with this man's name. And if you're not, uh, he has shaped to it. 20th century cinema in many many ways um he's better known as a screenwriter than a novelist but he's he's won oscars for butch cassidy and the sundance kid all the president's men plus he wrote marathon man the stepford wives he wrote the adaptation of stephen king's misery he uh is rumored to have ghostwritten uh goodwill hunting though he denies that what do you think do you think uh any truth to that he might have done a punch he might have done a pass i had ghost written is strong the dialogue is very assured from yeah. from first time screenwriters who uh, have not been known for their crackling assured dialogue <laughs> since. Have you read his book on screenwriting? He also wrote a literal Which book lie on did screenwriting. I tell? Well, that's his memoir, right? Or doesn't he have like a how to? Oh, you're right. Yeah, that was in screenwriting classes. They had us read like every book he'd ever written. That wasn't fiction. I actually didn't realize he wrote novels until very, very recently. But uh, yeah, they had us read a lot of his just books about writing and then just stories from the, the screenwriting trade. He wrote the book that the Burt Reynolds movie Heat was based on. So it'd be funnier if he wrote right. Heat, the Michael Mann movie. I know. When I first read that, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, this is the guy who wrote the book Princess Bride, which I read actually, I think like after I saw the movie, our school library had a copy and it became one of my favorite books. I just read it all the time. It's very funny, predictably. The idea came to him one night in the early 70s when he was putting his two young daughters to bed. And as he told Entertainment Weekly in 2011, I had two little daughters. I think there were seven and four at the time. And I said, I'll write you a story. What do you want it to be about? One of them said, a princess. And the other one said, a bride. I said, that'll be the title. <laughs> the book was published in 1973 and quickly became a favorite. Goldman wrote it in an unusual way. He has this, uh, the framing device of the book is that the story is an abridged version of a longer book by the fictional S. Morgenstern. And (laughs) Goldman adds his own kind of commentary to that tale aside through the book, which gives it a kind of, not just the satirical edge that's present in the movie, but a rather groundbreaking uh, meta-textual interrogation of the very notion (laughs) of storytelling. I didn't go to NYU, but I can talk like it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it's like what we were saying. It's very self-aware. Yeah. It's very, it, it tells the story from a certain remove where you can kind of like make fun of the silly parts. So the book made its way to a number of folks who would subsequently work on the movie. Actor Carrie Elwes, who plays Westley. It, it's so funny that his name is Westley. <laughs> I had to like triple check that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially because we have a very dear friend and bandmate, Wesley. Yeah. Actor Carrie Elwes, who plays Westley, was given the book by his stepfather as a 13-year-old. And Rob Reiner, the director of the film, was given the book by his father, comedy legend Carl Reiner, at some point in the mid-70s. Rob was in his mid-20s at the time, so that was an interesting choice. But despite this, mid-20s Rob loved the book. It became his favorite of all time, and all throughout the 70s, while he was starring as Mike Meathead Stivic in the groundbreaking CBS sitcom All in the Family... He carried a little flame for bringing the story to the big screen, and it would take a decade for him to get all those ducks in a row. Reiner quickly learned that many before him had tried and failed to adapt The Princess Bride into a film. In fact, it had something of a reputation around Hollywood as a cursed project. Uh, Jordan, clue us in another cursed project rolling around Hollywood at the time. 
Yes, yeah, probably one of the most famous supposedly cursed scripts Curse in Ed, Hollywood history. Please. Curse Ed, excuse me, is Attic, which is a fish out of water comedy about an Inuit trying to make it in the big city, <laughs> which sounds terrible. Did they rewrite? Did it become Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I mean, this literally was floating around Hollywood. I mean, it still is. It's never been made from, I think, the early 70s. And I think they were still trying to get it done as late as like the mid 2000s. And it's considered cursed, not only because it just was floating around for so long, but a disproportionate number of the actors who read for the lead role died soon after doing so. Uh, John Belushi, who I think was rumored to have had a copy of the script in his bungalow at the Chateau Marmont where he died. Uh, Sam Kinison actually was cast in the movie and I, I, they might've even started filming it, but then there was some disagreement between him and the studio where I guess he felt they'd initially promised him creative control and they reneged on that. So the production got shut down. So John Belushi, Sam Kinison, John Candy, and Chris Farley were all up for consideration to play the lead role of the titular Inuit. Um, and I think Phil Hartman was also somehow no involved way. in this. It was somehow like tangentially. I don't. That's got to be the highest body count for an unproduced script. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And this whole thing very kind of understandably gave rise to the urban legend that the script is cursed. Uh, in reality, it's probably just bad. So all this to say, The Princess Bribe is regarded as a similarly troubled enterprise. 20th Century Fox had bought the rights to the book soon after it was published in 73, and they intended to give it to Richard Lester, who directed the Beatles' two feature films. Uh, and then the head of production of Fox at the time was fired, and the project was put on ice. And this more or less would play out repeatedly over the next decade. Uh, every time someone tried to make this movie, some kind of disaster or mal- malfortune would befall them. Uh, one studio was going to make the movie, but days before they were due to ink the deal, they closed down because <laughs> Hollywood. Uh, another studio loved it, but days before the executive was going to ink the deal, he was fired. Director Norman Jewison, who would later direct Moonstruck, one of my favorites with Cher, tried to drum up interest, but he couldn't raise the funds. And other big-name directors who would try to make The Princess Bride in the 70s include Robert Redford, who would go on to make his directorial debut with uh, Ordinary People in 1980, John Borman, who the director of Deliverance, and this is the most inconceivable to me, French, (laughs) French New Wave director Francois Truffaut. Uh, of of the 400 blows, Jules et Jim, and many more, presumably. And the rest. And the rest. And they all failed. Um, so after a few years of watching his, uh, his beloved work languish in development hell, thanks to various levels of Hollywood chicanery, William <coughs> Goldman was pissed off enough to take the relatively unprecedented move of buying back the rights to his book with his own money. And for years, he subsequently turned down attempts to remake the film, uh, holding out for a hero. What is it? Waiting for a hero? Holding out for a hero? Yes, much like Bonnie Tyler, <laughs> he was holding out for a hero. Do you know that, do you know that song? Oh, yeah. I love that yeah, song. Yeah, from Footloose. Written by Jim Steinman, friend of the pod, Jim Steinman, baby. He told Eclipse of the Heart, too, right? Yeah. Uh, Steinman did total Eclipse of the Heart? I think so. Because I think that caused a huge riff with Meatloaf. Yes, he did. You're right. Meatloaf wanted to uh, sing that song, yeah. There was another song recently that I I just learned that he did that I had no idea, and I'm trying to remember what it was. I'm pretty sure you told me. Uh, Oh, it's all coming back to me now? Yes, 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 yes. God, Jim Steinman whips. Anyway, 
didn't think we'd get there in this episode, but glad we got holding out for a hero, baby. <laughs> and that hero came in the form of a Rob d- Meathead <laughs> Reiner of a, a 70s sitcom star, a schlumpy <laughs> Jewish guy with a mustache and no hair. And he succeeded where Robert Redford and Francois Truffaut <laughs> failed. I love that so much. That better be part of his. Us all. That better be part of his New York Times obit. <laughs> Rob Reiner, who succeeded where Rob Redford and Francois Truffaut failed, <laughs> and he got the gig for the pretty much the best reason imaginable. Basically, William Goldman really loved this is Spinal Tap. Do we describe what this is Spinal Tap is? I mean, everyone seems needs to know what this Spinal Tap is. It's the greatest. It's a a rockumentary, if you will. Yes, it's one of the greatest comedies of all time. It's a fictional documentary about a on their way down British rock band that sets the template for every great Christopher Guest movie, uh, Best in Show, uh, w- Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind that would follow. Pioneers the kind of talking head confessional comedy style. Yeah, pr- pr- figures the office. Uh, go watch Spino Tap, you dummies. <laughs> Good lord. I mean, who who do I who do I need to explain Spinal Tap to? The Zoomers? Right. They're not listening to this. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, as we previously said, Rob Reiner, uh, he's basically comedy royalty. His father was Carl Reiner, and Carl Reiner got to start working in Sid Caesar's writing room alongside the likes of Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, and Neil Simon before going on to work even more closely with Mel Brooks on his classic 2,000-year-old man comedy album and also star in The Dick Van Dyke Show. And Rob himself got his start writing for the groundbreaking and highly controversial CBS show, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in the late 60s, alongside a young Steve Martin. And then, of course, in 1971, he began starring in All in the Family, one of the funniest sitcoms of the 70s, possibly of all time for my money. It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. And then he made his directorial debut with Spinal Tap in 1984, which is a hell of a first time out. Uh, Then he made a John Cusack rom-com right after Spinal Tap called The Sure Thing, which I'm less familiar with, but is very fondly remembered. Do you remember this at all? No. No idea. First time hearing about it. Moving on. (laughs) All this to say, by the mid-80s, Rob Reiner had some serious juice, but it still wasn't enough to get the Princess Bride off the ground. Speaking to Variety years later, he recalled a meeting with Studio Brass in this period. He said, I had a meeting with this executive at Paramount. She said, we love your films. What do you want to do next? I said, well, you don't want to do what I want to do. She said, no, that's not true. I want to do what you want to do. I said, no, no, you don't want to do what I want to do. You want me to do what you want to do. She said, no, no, no. Just tell me, what do you want to do? What is it? I said, the princess bride. She got quiet and said, oh, well, anything but that. Because this movie had such a terrible reputation around town as sort of an unmakeable film. So instead, Rob Reiner made his adaptation of Stephen King's coming-of-age story, Stand By Me, a movie that opens with, do you guys want to see a dead body? And closes (laughs) with me weeping. We should do that soon. Eh. I mean, just the River Phoenix stories alone. Oh, that's so good. Uh, And once that movie was a hit, it gave Rob Reiner even more juice to push for his passion project, The Princess Bride. William Goldman, who was famously very protective of his story rights after a decade of being jerked around, liked Rob because he liked This Is Spinal Tap. And he also really liked the movie that he did after that, The Sure Thing. As Goldman later explained, Spinal Tap was a satire and The Sure Thing was an adventure-tinged romance put them together, you basically get the Princess Bride. 
But he especially liked Spinal Tap. He said later that he went to see it with his daughters, the ones who inspired the Princess Bride, and he was just shrieking the whole time. And that makes me love William Goldman so much more. So Rob Reiner convinced William Goldman to trust him with his story, but that was only half the battle. As Reiner would recall, no studio wanted to make a movie of The Princess Bride. Nobody was interested in it. We kept tearing the budget down. I had to cut my salary. I cut the cast salaries. It was crazy. I think we had like $16 million, which even at that time wasn't very much. In the script, it described the army of Florin. Florin is a fictitious land where the story takes place. I had like seven people in the army of Florin. (laughs) So it was a real skeleton crew. And in order to raise funds, I didn't realize this, Rob Reiner appealed to TV mega producer Norman Lear, who was the man behind All in the Family and like seriously half of the TV shows in the 70s. And All in the Family played a semi-major role in the creative development of The Princess Bride. Not only did Norman Lear help raise the money, but both Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal appeared in small roles on the show as Hmm. Rob Reiner's character's friends. Um, I just forget now what an insane run Rob Reiner had in the 80s and early 90s with his movies until yeah. he tanked it with North. Uh, Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. That's yeah. just a hell of a lineup. And let's not forget, he also did the voice acting for the rodents of unusual size in The Princess Bride. So <laughs> there's truly no end to this man's talents. And now we get to casting. For the lead role of the dashing Wesley, Reiner wanted a handsome, swashbuckling type. I can't say that (laughs) word. Swashbuckling. Swashbuckling. Do we ever determine what swashbuckling meant? You know, I was looking that up, and then I got sidetracked by uh, thinking about uh, Andre the Giant. What does it mean to to swash a buckle? I definitely think we've talked about this maybe in the Goonies episode, but I forget. Mm, Yeah. Swashbuckling comes from a fighting style popular in the... At one point. At one point. (laughs) Um, Sword and buckler play. Uh, Fighters were armed with a short, heavy fencing style rapier and a small center grip shield called a buckler. So it's not actually referring to a belt buckle. It's referring to the kind of shield. And part of the technique of this style was banging on the shield to, like, distract as, like, a feint or a bluff. And that action was actually called swashing. So swashbuckling literally just means hitting your shield to distract someone and annoy them. (laughs) So it's, like, one of those things that means, like, like cut purse means, like, pickpocking because that was the actual action that they would do. Like, cut somebody's purse and catch the coins they fall out or... Or uh, turnkey, as like uh, for guard mm. uh, to literally turn a key. Swashbuckle literally means uh, a guy who fought with a sword and shield and hit the shield a lot to distract his opponent. And just passed into modern use, you know. Anyway, Rob Reiner wanted a swashbuckler, and damn it, he found one. <laughs> Early in the development of The Princess Bride, he was considering Christopher Reeve, which would have been, that, that's a good choice. I could see that. And yeah. also a very young Colin Firth. He must have been very young, which I can also yeah. see. But then Rob Reiner saw Carrie Elwes in a movie called Lady Jane. And from that moment on, he had his heart set on him. Uh, he just had that silver screen adventure hero, Douglas Fairbanks, Errol Flynn energy that he was mm-hmm. after. He looks a lot like Errol Flynn. Yeah. Uh, and fittingly, both of those men played Robin Hood. And then a few years after The Princess Bride, Carrie went on to spoof those movies in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, which is great. Yep. 
Uh, in order to audition Carrie, though, Rob and his production partner had to fly to East Germany where Carrie was shooting an independent film. And unfortunately, this was in the immediate aftermath of the Chernobyl disaster. And East Germany was very close to the fallout danger zone. And Rob Reiner's production partner was very terrified about this. He refused to touch the bottled water on offer at the hotel and also forgot his $1,000 jacket in a cab after sprinting from the taxi to the hotel lobby. Mm -hmm. And this may have contributed to the fact that Carrie's audition was fairly quick. I guess they gave him the part after hearing him read just half a page of dialogue. And though he looked amazing and was clearly a great actor, Rob Reiner's main concern was that Carrie wasn't funny. And ultimately, Carrie got the part because he did an impression of Bill Cosby's cartoon character, Fat Albert. Hmm. Which... He's weird. Mm -hmm. He's not, again, like Jim Steinman, not something I thought we were going to bring up in this episode. But <laughs> there we go. And this brings us to... Heigl's Pirate Corner. <laughs> yeah. Fans of the movie know that Elwes' character Wesley is also known as the Dread Pirate Roberts, an inherited title passed down from one swashbuckling ne'er-do-well to swashbuckling ne'er-do-well. Although I don't think pirates had shields. Once again, now that we've learned the true meaning of the word swashbuckling... Uh, but actually, funnily enough, the Dread Pirate Roberts was actually a real guy, born Bartholomew Roberts, um, arguably the most successful pirate in history. He was born in 1682, and he captured over 400 ships during his wow. relatively brief career. Those are Jordan piracy stats. Michael yep. Jordan. Yes. <laughs> Not yes. me. I have never <laughs> captured a ship for all my love of the Titanic. I just want to crunch the numbers on this, though. He died yeah, at ahead. age 40. So mm -hmm. at what age do you qualify to be a true pirate? 20? 18? You want to say I mean, 20 think, just to keep it? Sure. I feel like yeah. those, I feel like younger, but go nuts. So let's say it, he started like pirating at the level where he could capture ships on his own at age 20. He died at age 40. That's 20 ships a year. So every two weeks, this guy is capturing a ship, which is amazing. And I also love the fact that his name is Bartholomew. Like Bart the Pirate. That name's not going to fly. No wonder he went with Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, and he's uh, he was known for his bravery, and he was also known for uh, his role in instituting the Pirate Code. He's Which one I'm of not the, familiar with. Uh, it's, it's pretty... Makes sense. <laughs> I was, like the I was, Hobo Code? What is it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I was reading up on it. I uh, did a little pirate, pirate code reading. <laughs> I did a little pirate coding. Um... Yeah, the first one was supposedly written by uh, a Portuguese buccaneer, also named Bartholomew. <laughs> but uh, Bart Roberts, his were similar, and this is funny. That's this the whole least thing intimidating about intimidating name. <laughs> that's like a. It's Bart like Roberts. A, it's like a town assessor. Yes. <laughs> Local Lowell, Massachusetts alderman Bart Roberts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he actually got his pirate. This whole thing about oral transmission or transmitting of, of piracy is hilarious because, uh, in the as in the movie, because Roberts got his set of pirate code from his captain, Howell Davis, and then his articles of piracy uh, went on to influence all the pirates under him. So there's like a grain of reality of this pirate code. Uh, every man has a vote in affair of the moment has equal title to fresh provisions, strong liquors, may use them at pleasure. Um, every man must be called fairly in turn on the board of prizes. No person to cheat at cards or dice. Uh, lights and candles to be put out at 8 o'clock at night. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> they have quiet hours. Uh, keep your pieces, pistols, and cutlass clean and fit for service. No boy or women allowed. 
Uh, to desert the ship or your quarters in battle is punishable with death. No striking one another on board. Every man's quarrels to be ended on shore. And the musicians have to rest on the Sabbath. That's Article 11. Wow. The rest of it's all about like divvying up booty. I didn't realize it was so, so codified. Yeah. Hey, you know, pi there's a really interesting book called TAZ, Temporary Autonomous Zone, that's by this anarchist uh, thinker that posits this really interesting theory that some of the most uh, successful implementations of like anarchist society were like pirate islands that were set up. Uh, the, the guy's name is Hakim Bey because he was arguing that they were like self-governing, self-regulating and, um, you know, operated independently of any governing structure. Basically during this era, like pi they would gather at like unmapped inlets and stuff and create these little, you know, the temporary societies, and and he argued that those were successfully operating examples of successfully operating anarchist zones, temporary autonomous zones, by Hakim Bey. That's like what we were talking about in the Chumbawamba episode, because Chumbawamba were anarchist, anarchist, punks and yeah. So anarchists actually, you know, have this reputation in pop culture of being like these lawless people, but they actually. Very much love laws, love as long rules. as they're the ones yeah. who are enforcing, who write them and enforce them. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. So the Dread Pirate Robert uh, died in a battle with the HMS Swallow <laughs> off the coast of Western Africa in 1722 when he was struck in the neck. He was shot with a grape shot cannon and then he bled to death on the deck of his ship. <laughs> so, womp womp. Uh... But even the Royal Navy was shocked that they'd gotten him. This concludes Heigl's Piracy Corner. <laughs> we, we need like a trumpet blast or something <laughs> yeah, to just, punch in there. <laughs> what's, a, <arr. laughs> what's a good What's a good piracy <laughs> thing? Where's my soundboard? I can pull up a pirate noise. Anyway, back to casting. Jordan. Back to casting. Finding the actress to play Buttercup was a bit more of an ordeal for Rob Reiner than finding his Wesley. He reportedly auditioned upwards of 500 women for the part. And among those up for consideration were Courtney Cox, Meg Ryan, Uma Thurman, and Whoopi Goldberg. Hmm. Author William Goldman said he'd been envisioning uh, the character of Buttercup as more of a Carrie Fisher type. But to play uh, what he described in his book as the most beautiful girl in all the land, they went with a 19-year-old Robin Wright, who uh, was very much a newcomer. Though she had a small role in the 1986 Penelope Ferris movie Hollywood Vice Squad, Robin Wright was chiefly known at the time for her work on the soap opera Santa Barbara. She'd auditioned for Rob Reiner's previous movie The Sure Thing, the rom-com with John Cusack, but she was turned down for just being too young and inexperienced. So when she was called to try out for this new Rob Reiner project, her hopes were not high. She later told the Chicago Tribune, I know there were about 500 other girls dying to play the part. I had heard that Rob wanted someone who looked like Julie Christie in the film Dr. Zhivago. I didn't quite think I fit the bill. And honestly, Rob Reiner wasn't quite so sure either. Her first audition wasn't very great by all accounts, but then in her second audition, they asked her to read the lines in an English accent. And though Robin Wright was born in Texas, her stepfather was British, and she grew up watching Monty Python and other British comedies, so she had the accent pretty well mastered. And Reiner was very taken with the performance. And that was pretty much that. In a commentary at a recent screening for The Princess Bride, he described finding Robin Wright as, quote, the greatest gift. And he immediately brought her to see William Goldman to get his sign off. And when she arrived at the author's door, the first thing he said was, well, that's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's so pretty. I know. 
Robert Wright herself downplayed all this somewhat in her retelling of the story. She told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I was literally the 500th ingenue to read for Rob, and I think he was so exhausted at that point, he was like, oh, God, just hire her. And she also admitted to CNN that she spent the whole shoot trying not to, quote, be an idiot in front of more established actors. Oh, I don't like how uh, self-effacing she is. But at least she had a good time while making The Princess Bride due in large part to her co-star, who, it must be said, was a very handsome leading man. God, he's good-looking. Yeah. Robin Wright developed a massive crush on her Wesley, Carrie Elwes, describing him as, quote, gorgeous and the blonde Zorro. Yeah. (laughs) She elaborated (laughs) to Town & Country magazine in 2014, Carrie was so good-looking, I was convinced we were going to be married. And she also added, I was absolutely smitten with Carrie. So obviously that helped our on-screen chemistry. And we really enjoyed one another. We made each other laugh constantly. He was and is still hilariously funny. And the feeling was predictably mutual as far as Carrie was concerned. He wrote in his 2014 book, As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. It was as if I was looking at a young Grace Kelly. Mm. Robin was that beautiful. To be honest, I couldn't concentrate on much of anything after that first encounter with Robin. She was the perfect buttercup in my mind's eye. And this is all very handy for the movie, except for the kissing scenes, during which the two leads conspired to flub their lines repeatedly so they would have to kiss each other over and over again, which is adorable. Yeah, that warms my heart. Yeah, yeah. Carrie wrote, I could have gone on shooting that scene all day, as I don't think I wanted the movie to end. It was also a very tender way to end the movie, sealing it with a kiss, so to speak. Everyone in this movie is so damn likable. I love it so much. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so pure, too. It wasn't even like, they weren't even like, uh, you know, uh, they had a sordid affair or anything. They were like, we just liked kissing each other. Yeah. I and, had a crush and, on him. <laughs> and though they didn't end up together, they both said that they remained close. And I think that is beautiful. And now we move on to my favorite member of the cast, Manny Potemkin as Inigo Montoya. Inigo. Inigo. Inigo Montoya. Yeah. Inigo Montoya, easily the most quotable character of the movie. Yeah, do it for me. Inigo Montoya. Oh, no, I'm not doing that line. No, you don't don't get that. You just did a third of it. No. Okay. No. No. Well, Rob Reiner was nicer to him than you are being to me right now. He <laughs> let Mandy Patinkin pick any character he wanted in the script, or at least that's what Mandy said. And Mandy felt drawn to Inigo. He told Entertainment Weekly for their oral history on The Princess Bride in 2011, The moment I read the script, I loved the part of Inigo Montoya. That character just spoke to me profoundly. I'd lost my own father. He died at 53 years old from pancreatic cancer in 1972. I didn't think about it consciously, but I think that there was part of me that thought, if I get that man in black, my father will come back. I talked to my dad all the time during the filming, and it was very healing for me. And this intensity carried over into the final fight scene when he stabbed Count Rugen, the fearsome man with six fingers who'd killed his father years before. And before they shot the scene, Manny Patinkin took a walk around the castle where they were filming it, talking to his dad, saying, I'm going to write it. I'm going to write this wrong. So the line when he thrusts the sword into Count Rugen's chest and says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch, that carried a lot of weight for him. And by killing the Count, Mandy said he was imagining that he was killing the cancer that had killed his father. And as he recalled in a making of feature for the DVD release for a moment, 
When I killed him, my father was alive and my fairy tale came true, which is devastating and devastating. <laughs> yes. Uh, Manny Patinkin's favorite line in the movie occurred near the end when Inigo says, I've been in the revenge business so long now that it's over. I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> and uh, Mandy later said that was a bit how he felt as he grieved and matured following his own father's early death. He said, quote, as a young man, I think I was in a bit of the revenge business for far too many years of my life. And, you know, somewhere in the last 10 years, I stopped being so angry and started being a little more grateful, literally for things like the sunrise and sunsets and my kids and my family and the gifts I've been given. And then recently I saw that movie, The Princess Bride. I didn't see the whole thing. I just caught the end of it. And I heard that line. I've been in the revenge business for so long. I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. As a young man, I remember saying it, and I went back and looked at my script to see the notes I'd put in for that scene, and I didn't have any notes for that line. I just said it, and I didn't realize what I was saying. And then I heard it as a grown-up, or whatever you want to call me now, and it meant everything to me today. I just think that, that's a great perspective. I, I love this guy. Uh, he seems like the best. He said he sobbed when he first saw this movie, and when his wife asked him why, he said, I just never thought I'd be in a movie like this. You know, he was a Broadway guy. He wasn't supposed to be in a swashbuckling movie. <laughs> and as he later observed, he was never in a movie like this again. So it was a really nice moment for him. According to him, the role of Inigo Montoya is his personal favorite of everything he's ever done throughout yeah. his entire career, obviously. And he says that he gets his famous line, hello, uh, oh, please. No. Okay. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He says that gets quoted back to him by at least two or three strangers every day of his life, and he loves it. He's quoted as saying, when it happens, I have a smile as big as can be from one end of the room to the other. I This, this man forms my heart. I want to give Manny Patinkin a hug. You should see him. My mom saw him live and said he like leads the whole crowd in a, in a rendition of that song and like tells a variation of this story like uh, uh, as his live thing. Where does he perform? Like, is he doing he a one-man like, show or something? Yeah, he just does, like, he, like ramp, just, it's literally just, like, go, go see Mandy Patank and talk. <laughs> like, that was how she saw him. Aww. It was like, he, like, came to Pennsylvania and was just, like, uh, yeah, just, like, talked about being on Broadway, talked about that, what the fuck was he in Homeland? Talked about Homeland. Right, yeah. Talked about Princess Bride, and then he, like, yeah, he led the whole crowd in that line. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. Wallace Shawn, meanwhile, uh, is... Not quite as generous to his fans. Uh, I mean, he, I'm sure he's fine in person. He gave some quote, and I think it was in an AV Club interview where he talks about how people say inconceivable to him all the time. And he said something bitchy about like, oh, yeah, people think that the first person who's ever done that to me. Yeah. The man has anxieties. <laughs> Don't we all? We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. 
Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon Serum. This next-generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Well, Heigl, we've arrived. Here it is. Oh, yeah. Tell us about Andre the Giant. I got to stretch for this one. I don't know if you folks know this about me, but I love <laughs> Andre the Giant. I think he's such a fascinating guy. Yeah. Such a, All his stories are amazing. He's truly, as he was billed, uh, the ninth wonder of the world. Is that what they call him? Yeah, the, that's a, that. this is part of his ring introduction in, in wrestling. Uh, William Goldman had Andre and Giant in mind when he wrote the part of Fezzik. He used to go to Madison Square Garden to watch Andre <laughs> during his WWF heyday. Uh, casting director Jane Jenkins told Vice in 2017, I asked during a meeting, so this giant guy, what are we talking here? How big? <laughs> and they told me, like Andre the Giant. And she didn't know who that was. <laughs> so her partner was like, oh, he's literally the biggest wrestler that there is. <laughs> And she called World Wrestling Federation to explain that they were interested in casting him for a movie, gave him the dates that they'd be shooting. And unfortunately, their shooting schedule coincided with a wrestling match that he was due to wrestle in Tokyo, for which he would be paid $5 million. Uh, and they asked, will you pay him $5 million to be in the movie? <laughs> and Jenkins said, I don't think so. That's like half the budget of this movie. So they pivoted. Uh, they, they they considered people like Liam Neeson, which is hilarious because he's tall, but not like giant tall. Uh, he and he's was, like wiry. Yeah, yeah. He, they probably would have put him in prosthetics. Um, sure enough, Rob Reiner was like, he's too short. Uh, so they started going to the world of professional sports. They found a couple of football players that they brought in. Jenkins said, I proceeded to meet every tall person in L.A. and say, if you didn't duck in to come through my doorway, you're too short. Um, at one point, the they offered the role to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, who had previously done some acting in Airplane. Um, he plays himself as one of the plane's co-pilots in one of the best scenes. Uh, ask your old man how it feels to be dragging so-and-so up the court every night for 40 minutes. Every night! <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, itself a riff on NFL star Elroy Hirsch's casting in Zero Hour, the disaster movie that Airplane was spoofing. So uh, Kareem had, had, had experience in the field, and he was interested in the role. 
but he had to turn it down because shooting conflicted with his NBA schedule. Lou Ferrigno, then known for playing the Incredible Hulk on TV, was floated, as was Arnold Schwarzenegger early on. Um, <laughs> Arnold Schwashbuckler. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenbuckler. I just keep riffing. Uh, but by the time <laughs> no the bad movie... ideas, brain stuff. <laughs> yeah, come on, baby. Uh, but by the time the movie actually got made, Schwarzenegger was too expensive <laughs> because he would have gone from the weirdo in Pumping Iron to uh, the Terminator and Conan in short order. And Sh- Schwarzenegger's also not as tall as everyone thinks he is. There's that amazing photo of him on the set of, uh, I think, the second Conan when he's standing between uh, Kurt. Will Chamberlain and uh, Grace Jones and one and one of his stunt doubles and they're like lifting him off the ground like he's a child. Um, <laughs> Arnold is billed as being six two, but people have said that he actually is closer to five ten, which is adorable. Another big tall guy, Dutch actor Karl Sikin, who would go on to play Lurch in Adam's Family was also considered, but he was committed to filming The Witches of Eastwick at the time. I don't remember what he played in The Witches of Eastwick. Satan? I, like, I don't know. Presumably a large, yeah. Yeah, a large, weird-looking guy. But Jenkins told Vice that Andre's Japan match got canceled, and so Reiner and Goldman dropped everything to fly to Paris and meet with him. I think they literally walked out of an audition, I think. They're like, drop, hold everything, we gotta get, get me Andre the Giant. Uh... I came into the hotel. The guy behind the desk said, there's a man waiting for you at the bar, Reiner said. I walk in, and there's a large man sitting on two bar stools. He was huge. Reiner also uh, described him as a landmass at one point, <laughs> which is amazing. I brought him up to the hotel room to audition him. He read this three-page scene, and I couldn't understand one word he said. I go, oh my God, what am I going to do? He's perfect physically for the part, but I can't understand him. So I recorded his entire part on tape, exactly how I wanted him to do it, and he studied the tape. He got pretty good. Uh, Legends of the seven foot four. It's been debated as to whether he actually got that tall, but he was definitely in the neighborhood. Seven foot four, 520 pound Andre the Giant, uh, and his various appetites are many. Three bottles of cognac and 12 bottles of wine gave him a buzz. (laughs) When the cast would go out to dinner, Andre would drink out of a 40-ounce beer pitcher filled with a mix of liquors, uh, which was a a concoction that he called the American. And according to Robin Wright, he ordered four appetizers and five entrees for himself. There was a story that he ran up a 40 grand bar tab at one point during the filming of this. That probably wasn't even his highest. Like when he was out entertaining people, he probably got even higher than that. He hated the food that was on set, uh, so he would take his week off to drive to France and bring back his favorite French foods, which he would then share with the rest of the cast. That's Uh, heartwarming. uh, He has the best. Going through all that trouble and then like sharing it with everybody. Yeah, he used to drink a case of wine. He would just, what is some of the better Andre drinking stories? I didn't put these in here when I was writing, but I I want to... He once drank 119 beers in six hours. I mean, drinking anything of that number. Yeah. Drinking 100... How how much was it? 119? 119 beers in six hours. 119 seltzers in six hours. Or uh, uh, one beer every three minutes, nonstop, for six straight hours. That was the one when when he passed out in the hotel lobby and they just covered him in a piano cover and said... 
Oh, I thought they uh, put velvet ropes up. <laughs> maybe, maybe this was multiple occasions. Oh, maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was at the Hyatt in London that he ran up a $40,000 bar tab while filming Princess Bride. Let's see. He once drank a case of wine in three hours. How uh, many bottles are in a case? 24. 12 bottles. Sorry. That's according to Hulk Hogan. Um, Bobby Heenan, another wrestling story, said that... Uh, so there was this, the Marriott in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Bobby Heenan was there and the bartender said, is Andre with you this time? And Bobby Heenan said, no. And the bartender said, oh, thank God. Last time he was here, I gave him last call and he didn't want to leave. So I told him he could only, that I could only stay as long as he was drinking. And Andre ordered 40 vodka tonics and <laughs> sat there drinking them until four in the morning. So just brief roundup of Andre the, drink, of Andre the Drinker. <laughs> Um, he would go bar hopping with Cariella's in New York and they were, uh, politely, you say, tailed by an off-duty cop who had been hired by production to keep an eye on Andre in case he fell over and hurt someone, which had already happened again. Yes. <laughs> so yes, to preclude further instances of Andre passing out and injuring someone, like a tree falling on you, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the night of the yeah, this is one of the other passing out incidences. The night of the Princess Bride's first read through, the script read through, Andre got so drunk that he passed out in the middle of the lobby. Hotel employees obviously could not move him, so they put velvet ropes around him and told the maids not to vacuum until he woke up. <laughs> um, on set, he would keep a flask of cognac in his coat and share it with cast members. Um, but you know, there's a bit of tears of the clown situation going on here too, because for every bit of good natured joie de vivre. Uh, that Andre's boozing and eating came from. There was an equal dose of pain uh, just simply from living in that body. Uh, you know, it was it, it was as if gravity had embarked on a long corrective campaign against him for daring to take up so much space in the world. He was born with a syndrome called acromegaly, which causes uh, an excess of the growth hormone, which made him enormous, but put terrible strain on all of his joints and body. Uh, his years wrestling exacerbated that. Um, and took their toll on him physically. Just before Princess Bride started shooting, he had undergone back surgery and was just in constant pain throughout the shoot. And he couldn't stand any pressure on his back. He couldn't lift or carry anything, which is the kind of the grand irony that you hire the biggest guy in the world to be this enormous, imposing physical presence, and he can't do anything. Uh, and the final few scenes of the film really posed the biggest challenge for this situation um, because he had to ride a horse, first of all, which poor horse uh but to get the shot and avoid injuring both andre and the horse he had to be lowered onto the horse very slowly using a crane <laughs> and I mean, this, that's yeah that's a great hilarious. image yeah <laughs> beep 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 he's like drinking cognac on the yeah. way down uh, for the scene in which he catches Princess Buttercup in his arms, she was lowered into his arms on wires. And there's photos of his stunt double out there, a guy named Randy Morris, uh, who surely would have been the only man in the world capable of doing this job. And so for the scenes where Wesley's like jumping on his back and actually fighting with him, that's a, that's a stunt double. But pretty much everybody loved Andre on the set. Uh, he called everyone boss to help them relax around him. Um, during cold filming days, he would put his hand around, on Robin Wright's head to keep her warm. His hand was so big, it reached down past her eyes and covered the back of her neck. She said, uh, we're in the middle of the forest and we'd be standing next to each other in our costumes and it's freaking cold and wet. 
He put his hands on my head, literally, to keep me warm from shivering. His hands covered my whole head. The heat from his hand was like an electric blanket. He was just very sweet and thoughtful. He would always hand me his coat if mine wasn't nearby. Christopher Guest said he made a point of shaking Andre's hand every day just for the sensation of having your entire hand disappear into one of his mitts. <laughs> he was like, it was like shaking hands with somebody with a catcher's mitt. And Mandy Patain had remembered a moment when the two of them were sitting on the boat set with the script supervisor. And uh, he asked Andre if uh, he was enjoying himself. And Andre said, oh, yes, nobody looks at me. Um, his relationship with Billy Crystal on the film also served as the inspiration for Billy Crystal's 1998 film, My Giant, a story of a talent agent who, as you put it, makes a very tall friend. <laughs> do you, do you know that? I, I don't remember this movie. I remember seeing it. Yeah. Tell us about it. I, I mean, I, I saw it when it came out in like the late nineties, but I think it was a similar situation of, uh, this very tall man. I mean, people who are that tall usually have a lot of health problems and don't live very long. So I, I, I think it was one of those, you know, tearjerker comedies. Uh, yeah, that's all I remember about it. Chris Sarandon brought his two young daughters to the set and recalled to Variety, Andre was sitting down at the end of his makeup table and we walked up the steps and turned the corner. My daughter Stephanie took one look at Andre and started screaming at the top of her lungs and she wouldn't stop. Of course, her sister picked up on it and she started screaming. We had to take them out immediately. I went back and said, Andre, I'm so sorry. Please forgive their behavior. And he said, no, no, no. Either they come to me or run from me. <laughs> All of humanity. Either they come from me or they run from me. And he went and palmed Robin Wright's head to cheer himself up. <laughs> uh, there's a great bit of Andre's lore, which is that he grew up getting uh, school rides, rides to school in Samuel Beckett, waiting for Godot and Endgame scribe. Samuel Beckett's tractor because he was too big to fit in a bus. And that's Carrie talked about it uh, in his book. He's talked about it in interviews. Uh, he said he asked what Andre and Beckett talked about on these rides, and Andre said mostly cricket. Um, but there's a great Andre the Giant documentary that came out on HBO, and the director of that, Jason Herrer, told a business insider that the tale as told as it's evolved is somewhat exaggerated. He said, uh, Beckett's house is a few hundred yards down the road from Andre's childhood home. That is true. The reality is there was no bus to school in that town. There was a two kilometer walk from Andre's house into the center of town where the schoolhouse was. And all the kids in the village took that walk to and from school every day. Beckett had a truck. And if he passed the kids, he would stop and let them hop into the flatbed of his truck and he would drive them to or from school. But it wasn't singular to Andre, and he had no special relationship with Andre any more than he did with any other child in that area. Andre's brother laughed at us when we told him what the legend is. I'm cutting that. I like to believe the legend. <laughs> Print the legend, right? Yeah. Uh, Carrie Elwes told Entertainment Weekly, Andre said, we big people don't live long. Oh. Yeah, it's a crushing, it's a crushing quote. He had that thing you come across with people who are terminally ill, where they have a secret most of us don't get. They understand that life is precious and you have to cherish every moment. He really imparted that to me. He was so filled with life and fun and so sweet. Such a truly gentle soul. I mean, for a guy who could crush you like squatting a mosquito, he was so incredibly gentle. Andre was born Andre René Rusimov in 1946 at the foot of the French Alps in a town called Grenoble. And he was just the sweetest boy. <laughs> His retirement included a, a farm in North Carolina, which he said he loved puttering around because the animals didn't look twice at him. Uh, in his more candid moments with people, he'd talk about how tough it was for him. 
uh, how they, they build things and accommodate people with disabilities like blindness and walking disabilities. They build wheelchair ramps, but uh, they don't, not for people his size, you know, he was forced to buy extra airplane seats. Nothing fit him. Hotel beds didn't fit him. He was notoriously proud of his work on Princess Bride and insisted on watching it over and over again with his fellow wrestlers in the years after after it came out. And Andre died in 1993. He uh, traveled. He had traveled in terrible pain from North Carolina to France for his father's funeral. And uh, there's a wrestling writer named David Shoemaker who had a great eulogy for Andre that I'd like to read. He was an icon of a different era, the last in a long line of real men, William Wallace, Vlad the Impaler, Davy Crockett, etc., who became gods in the retelling of their tales. In the modern era, with television and later the internet, there is no folklore, no myth-making. Andre's death, heartbreaking as it was, elevated him into the pantheon, into the world of memory and legend, which is where he always belonged anyway. I want to offset this by punching in the uh, Austin Powers line. No, really, how could you do it? The sheer mechanics of it are mind-boggling. <laughs> I'm not going to Google that. Yeah, no, you don't. I think you're going to find something you don't want to find. Yeah. Well, now to cheer ourselves up, we're going to the Billy Crystal corner of the program. For the part of Miracle Max, Rob Reiner went with his buddy Billy Crystal. And as I said earlier, the pair went way back, meeting on the set of All in the Family in 1975. After producer Norman Lear had caught Billy Crystal set at the Comedy Store and cast him as the best friend of Rob Reiner's character. And the two became fast friends in real life and eventual collaborators, with Billy having a small role in Spinal Tap as a catering mime. Mime is money. Mime is money. It's so good. Did you do the thing with the did you do the thing with the wings? (laughs) And then of course he went on a star in Rob Reiner's When Harry Met Sally in 1989, just after the princess bride but his part in the princess bride required extensive prosthetics and billy brought two photos to the makeup artist for inspiration one of them was a photo of his own grandmother and another was longtime new york yankees manager casey stangle (laughs) (laughs) and if you look at i mean i've never seen a picture of his grandmother but if you look at casey stangle i can kind of see it Mm mm-hmm These extensive prosthetics meant that Billy and his co-star, Carol Kane, who played his wife, Valerie, had to get to the set each day at 2 a.m. And it also took them an hour at the end of the day just to remove the prosthetics. They were only on the set for three days, but Billy and Carol really put their sweat and blood into their performances. Before the shooting began, they met up at Carol's apartment to develop an elaborate backstory for their characters. Carol Kane later said, we added our own twists and turns and stuff that would amuse us because there's supposed to be a long story between the couple. Who knows how many hundreds of years Max and Valerie have been together. And Rob Reiner gave Billy Crystal permission to go off script and ad lib during his scenes. And as Carrie Elwes wrote in his book, for three days straight and 10 hours a day, Billy improvised 13th century period jokes, never saying the same thing or the same line twice. And the result was a string of hilarious yet mostly unfamily-friendly jokes that ended up on the cutting room floor. Rob Reiner was laughing so hard during these scenes that he had to leave the set. <laughs> Which I think that's like a listicle of like directors who had to leave the set because they were just laughing too hard. Were sure. we talking about that in uh, maybe uh, Good Will Hunting with Robin Williams? Yeah, I forget. It was, yeah. yeah, I forget. I feel like that's come up a few times on here. Uh, Manny Patinkin didn't have the luxury of leaving the set because he was his scene partner and he needed to deliver the lines off camera. He worked so hard to stifle his laughter and hold it in that he bruised a rib. 
Uh, Billy Crystal later told Entertainment Weekly, we ad-libbed a lot of stuff. Lines like, have fun storming the castle. Don't go swimming for an hour, a good hour. Those were all ad-libbed. There was a lot of really funny stuff that never made it into the movie. Things like, don't bother me, Sonny. I had a bad day. I found my nephew with a sheep. And true love is the greatest <laughs> thing in the world, except for a good PM. <laughs> <laughs> and although it was only three days on the set, Billy says he has really fond memories of the experience. He remembers breaking for lunch one day and walking down the hallway at Shepard and Studios to the cafeteria. And he said, we got a leading man, a giant, Carol Kay looking like an apple sculpture, all just looking at the menu going, well, what looks good? Like it was the most normal thing in the world. That was movie magic. And speaking of prosthetics, this brings us to Peter Falk, a man who doesn't need prosthetics to look like a human cartoon. Yes, we cannot forget the humans who provide the framing devices for the plot of The Princess Bride in the real world. Peter Falk plays the grandfather who's reading a story to his sick young grandson, played by a pre-Kevin Arnold Fred Savage, who we will talk more about in an upcoming episode about The Wonder Years, which I've been writing for like two months now. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, It was Fred Savage's first major role, and he was thrilled about going on his first international flight to England, which is cute. 60-year-old Peter Falk, uh, less cute. He had some 15 years of Columbo under his belt at the time, and he felt he was too young to play a grandfather, which a little bit of denial there. He's 60, but uh, instead he insisted on using prosthetics to age him, which I just, it seems like a very uncharacteristically diva move for a guy who looks like peter falk who existed (laughs) in a wrinkled raincoat for most of the 70s uh sadly he was not impressed with the makeup rob reiner later said we did a test with it and he looked at it and said rob i look like a burn victim and rob said peter maybe we do it without the prosthetics (laughs) and he said i think you're on to something and I, i cannot mention peter falk without remembering this story that i heard God knows how many years ago, Peter Falk, he lost an eye as a three-year-old, but he was a very active athlete, which is impressive considering you lack depth perception with one eye. Baseball was his favorite, and he has this very colorful story. He said, I remember once in high school, the umpire called me out at third base when I was sure I was safe. I got so mad, I took out my glass eye, handed it to him, and said, try this. I got such a laugh you wouldn't believe. (laughs) He also described his time in the Navy by saying, they don't care if you're blind or not. The only one on a ship who has to see is the captain. And in the case of the Titanic, he couldn't see very well either. Sick burn. Like Peter Falk, Wallace Shawn was another guy who was somewhat nervous as he prepared for his role. Like his character, Venezi the Sicilian, Wallace Shawn is truly a man of dizzying intellect. He has a history degree from Harvard, and he also studied philosophy and economics at Oxford. Talk about whole-brained. And he actually took a day off of filming The Princess Bride to return to Oxford to deliver a guest lecture on British and American literature. So he is wicked smart. (laughs) But Wallace was crippled by nerves throughout most of the production. And things really got off on the wrong foot when his agent made a kind of questionable move of telling him that Rob Reiner had originally wanted Danny DeVito for the role. And I'm guessing his agent shared this fact with Wallace to help him tailor his performance, but all it did was make him angst over the fact that he was nothing like Danny DeVito, leaving him in a state of constant fear that he was going to be fired. Danny's inimitable, Wallace later said. Each scene we did, I pictured how Danny would have done it, and I knew I could never possibly done it the same way. It made it challenging. 
And he also thought he was going to be fired on the first day because he couldn't do a Sicilian accent. I'm just imagining Danny DeVito like as the, in that role, just being like, whore. (laughs) (laughs) As Rob Reiner would later very correctly observe, Wally Shawn is probably the furthest thing from a Sicilian. Which is true. Mm-hmm. And eventually, just to calm his nerves, Rob Reiner told them, we want the Sicilian to sound just like you, Wally. But Wallace Shawn really struggled with this part because he didn't really understand the humor of the movie as they were making it. So Rob Reiner resorted to giving him line readings, which directors are very loath to do for him to imitate. And Wallace, with classic kind of Deakish understatement later told the AV Club, I must have done it adequately as people compliment me on it on a daily basis. Yeah. I think he's, an, I think he's a nice man, but he just hasn't. Just nuclear unca- grade neurotic. Yeah. Uh, he also has, I think, my favorite line in the movie Inconceivable. You have to do Actually, with the no. lisp. Inconceivable. Because <laughs> he has Actually, the lisp, right? right, That's not, right you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I, guess, I think my favorite line in the movie is actually Mandy Patinkin saying, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah. But Vinizzi the Sicilian says that line five times in the movie, making it second only to As You Wish, which is said seven times as the movie's most frequently reoccurring catchphrase. But Wallace Shawn wasn't just scared about his performance. He was, like all of us, scared of dying. The scene where he, Manny Patinkin, and Robin Wright's character are hauled up the cliffs of insanity by Andre the Giant's character, Fezzik, uh, he was absolutely petrified due to his crippling fear of heights. All he had to do was sit on a bike seat and hold onto the rope and get pulled up these cliffs on a winch, but he was absolutely petrified. And then that was further compounded by the fact that he was worried about how his fear was affecting his performance. And this poor guy, he was near tears saying, I'm worried I'm going to ruin the film. I have no ability to do this. And eventually, in yet another Andre the Giant is the best story, Andre sussed out that this guy was having a problem, and he went over and asked Wallace why he was so upset. And Wallace told him, and Andre replied by patting him on the head like a child and saying, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And from that moment on, Wallace was fine. Did the take, and everything was great. I think my favorite line from this movie is uh, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Selling something, yeah. And, and, and we'll never survive. Nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. <laughs> it's, it, God, the writing in this is so witty. It's yeah. so good. Uh, another person who was very nervous during the production was the man responsible for these lines, William Goldman. Despite all the blockbusters he'd written, two of which had won him an Oscar by this point, he loved The Princess Bride most of all, and after 15 years of confronting every disaster possible while trying to get his passion project made, he was a little skittish now that they were finally shooting it. To assuage any fears, Rob Reiner invited him onto the set, which Goldman historically didn't like to do, saying, if you're a screenwriter, it's boring. But he broke his own rule in this case, visiting the set of The Princess Bride on the first day of shooting where he promptly had a meltdown. (laughs) Not long into the shoot, the sound engineers noticed a weird noise in the background of the audio tapes. They described it as sounding like some strange incantation. The sound was (laughs) William Goldman chanting prayers to God the whole time, hoping the movie (laughs) shoot would go okay. (laughs) And Rob Reiner went over and gave this guy a hug, trying to get him to calm down. But William Goldman did not calm down. A short time later that same day, Robin Wright's character has her red dress catch on fire. 
and the high-strung William Goldman apparently forgot that he had written this into the script himself and assumed that a major onset disaster had just occurred. And he panicked, ruining the take by screaming, Oh my God, her dress is on fire! She's on fire! <laughs> and he later backtracked, insisting that he was mostly just horrified that they were doing fire stuff on the first day. He was like, Rob, you're setting fire to Robin on the first day. What are you, nuts? It's not like he could replace her. Another excellent line setting off, you seem a decent fellow, I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow, I hate to die. Uh, <laughs> thus begins one of the best sword fights in uh, cinematic history. It's not Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon level stuff, but it has quite the pedigree. Um, yeah. It's referred to the, in the book and the movie as the greatest sword fight in modern times. And Carrie Elwes and Manny Patankin put in the work, as did Bill Goldman. He spent months researching 17th century sword fighting manuals to uh to craft their duels i had no idea i thought all of that stuff was made up to sound funny that is all historically accurate sword fighting terms like the la grip and bizzini and zababadoo and jibby yeah you know i'm just you know i got nothing but no bad ideas no bad ideas (laughs) of brainstorm uh i can see you've studied your la grip it counters excellently unless your opponent has studied the grip which i have uh, but neither Elwes or Patankin had any fencing experience, so they spent months training. Patankin recalled in Elwes' book, I knew my job was to become the world's greatest sword fighter. I trained for about two months in New York, and then we went to London, and Carrie and I trained every day that we weren't shooting for four months. There were no stuntmen involved in any of the sword fights, except for one flip in the air. So, as he mentioned, before filming, they trained for eight to ten hours a day for two and a half weeks with a pretty legendary duo of stuntmen. Peter Diamond has over a thousand credits in the industry as a stuntman, coordinator, or choreographer, including on various Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, From Russia with Love, and Doctor Who, going back to the 70s. But Olympic fencer Bob Anderson is the real deal here. He is behind the sword fights in Highlander. Uh, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Mask of Zorro, many, many more, as well as stunt doubling for Darth Vader in The uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And he coached Errol Flynn and Burt Lancaster. What more of a Hollywood sword fighting pedigree do you want? Wow. So, but, and this is funny, unbeknownst to Carrie Elwes, Mandy Patinkin had started his lessons two months prior, so he came <laughs> in with a leg up. And then these guys came to set. So even after all of this pre-shooting training, they would still, anytime they were minute, like just any free time in between their shots, Diamond and Anderson would like collar them and be like, all right, guys, time to work on the sword stuff. And this was the last, one of the last scenes uh, shot at the end of the four month shoot uh, to give them the maximum amount of time to work on it, perfect it. And it took a week to film. Uh, funnily enough, even though both, this is insane, both Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin learned to fence with their left and right hands, like their characters did, but the scene where they switch hands was actually shot on mirrored sets, so that the image could then be flipped, which would create the illusion. So even though they went through the effort of learning how to do it, they used movie trickery to fake it. <laughs> but... As they started filming this, Reiner was like, uh, this scene's too short. Anderson, Diamond, uh, add some stuff. So they, they did. And he wrote, they wrote extra dialogue. They wrote extra quipping back and forth. But um, yeah, they added. So they added extra stuff to get it up to the, the runtime. And then there was one last thing that had to be changed. Uh, Elwes told the Huffington Post in 2014, there's a bit of one of the sequences that wasn't working for the camera. And Rob said, we can't see it. You guys have it faced the wrong way. Mandy said to Bob Anderson, we've got to change it. And Bob said, we can't. 
we're shooting it. Rob said, you've got 20 minutes. If you can fix it, great. If you can't, we're moving on. And in 20 minutes, we actually got it and did it. It was nice to remember that we could actually come up with something on the spur of the moment and fix it. Iconic. That's terrifying. <laughs> what a great scene. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it truly is one of the best sword fights in cinema history. It stands alongside all the Errol Flynn, Douglas Fairbanks stuff. All the well, truly two of the best swashbucklers. <laughs> it makes it's great. It's a great scene, too, because it's not just like the choreography is great. Camera works great and everything. But it tells it's a fight scene that tells a story mm, yeah. and the pacing of the dialogue and the sort of slowly dawning that Wesley is is like a much better swordsman than an ego like. It just, it, it all comes, it, it's so perfectly paced. It's a little, I mean, this is why people study William Goldman, man. It's just like a little microcosm of like how to tell a story with an action scene, you know? And there's one thing to take away from just all the dedication that these actors put into the sword fighting is that they were not afraid of taking on risky stunts. And uh, this sometimes went well for the cast. Sometimes it didn't go well. The scene where Wesley has to jump into the quicksand to follow Buttercup is a prime example the direction originally called for him to jump in feet first, but Carrie O.S. felt that this didn't look heroic enough, so instead he opted to dive into the quicksand head first. But this was a bit nerve-wracking because the quicksand effect was accomplished through the use of a trap door hidden beneath the sand. And if the trap door wasn't opened at exactly the right instant, Carrie risked breaking his neck. Thankfully, they nailed the shot in a single take, but it soon became clear that the film's leading man was uh, a little accident-prone. <laughs> For weeks on the set, he nursed a broken toe, which makes so many of those action scenes all the more impressive. Like during that sword fight scene, he had a broken toe. And this toe, it was not a result of a stunt gone wrong or anything uh, particularly heroic. It was the result of a joyride on Andre the Giant's ATV. <laughs> As you previously mentioned, Andre's size meant that he was in constant physical pain and needed some help getting around. And given the fact that he was too big to fit in the van with the rest of the cast, he was given an ATV to drive himself around the hills where they were shooting exteriors. And one day, about six weeks into the production, Andre encouraged Carrie to give it a try. I mean... If Andre the Giant rolls up next to you on an ATV and welcomes you to try his four-wheeler, you, you're going to try it. I mean, that's just how it goes. As Carrie recalled, one day Andre pulled up to me with his ATV and said, you want to try it, don't you? I can't. I've never tried it before. You know you want to. It's so much fun. <laughs> He's already drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie got on and he said, I put the thing into gear and I literally went over a rock and my toe got caught between a rock and the clutch oh. and bent it back all the way. I knew I broke it instantly. And unfortunately, he still had to shoot a scene where he was running, not to mention the sword fighting scenes, both of which are very hard to do with a broken toe. And he did his best to hide the injury from Rob Reiner because not only was it still in the early stages of production and he was frightened of being replaced... He was also just embarrassed. He called it the most cringeworthy moment of my life. You can't have a hopping dread pirate Roberts. And when Rob Reiner ultimately did find out about it, it was one of those cases of not being mad, just disappointed. <laughs> Carrie recalled it as a, quote, valuable lesson in telling the truth. He'd say, when Rob found out, he was upset that I hadn't told him. I said, I was afraid you'd fire me. And he said something very sweet to me. He said, don't be silly, Carrie. I wouldn't fire you. You're the only person who could play Wesley. And that really boosted my spirit. Then he asked, can you walk? And I said, yeah. 
And he said, can you run? And I said, it'll be an interesting interpretive dance. <laughs> and there are little moments in the film when you notice him hopping and limping. But shockingly, he filmed that sword fight with Manny Patinkin with a broken toe. He later explained, in a strange way, I think the broken toe actually helped because I had to focus more on the movements in my arms and learn how to become proficient, more proficient than I probably would have been if I hadn't broken my toe, at being left-handed because I had just had to focus on the sword fighting itself. But Kerry would sustain another injury on the set, this time when the cameras were rolling, and it occurred during the scene where Wesley recognizes Count Rugen, played by Christopher Guest, as the evil six-fingered man. And in the script, the Count is supposed to knock Wesley unconscious with the butt of his sword, and Christopher Guest, understandably, didn't want to hit his fellow actor on the head with the butt of his sword, but his reluctance made the take seem a little bland. So eventually, Carrie, who again is the man who dove headfirst into quicksand, suggested that Christopher Guest just hit him for real. And Christopher Guest complied a little too well, and Carrie was knocked unconscious. That's the take they used in the film? Yep. That's crazy. It's so nuts. As he wrote in his book, As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. I just want to plug this guy's book because he's so nice and he deserves it. Christopher Guest swung the heavy sword down towards my head. However, as fate would have it, it landed just a touch harder than either of us anticipated. And that, folks, was the last thing I remember from that day's shoot. In the script, Bill Goldman's stage directions from the end of the scene state, the screen goes black in the darkness, frightening sounds. Which is precisely what happened. I woke up in the emergency room, still in costume, to the frightening sound of stitches being sewn into my skull. From the same doctor, no less, who had treated me only weeks earlier for my broken toe. I remember him saying to me after I came in, well, Zorro, you seem to be a little accident prone, don't you? <laughs> and of course, Christopher Guest felt absolutely terrible about the whole thing, even though I kept telling him it wasn't his fault. It was my dumb idea. But you know what? That particular take was the one that ended up in the film. So when you see Wesley fall to the ground and pass out, that's not acting. That's an overzealous actor actually losing consciousness. Good for him. <laughs> Uh, Christopher Guest had bad luck with swords during the making of The Princess Bride. He tells the story of going horseback riding in his costume for the film, and the horse just seemed to go completely wild and lose control. Took off, nearly running headfirst into a wall, and it took him a little while, but they realized that the scabbard of Chris's sword was whacking the horse on its side, almost like a spur. So it was giving it the message to just go faster all the time, and that led to it just going out of control. Which yeah. is scary. Have you ever gone on a horse? No. Really? No. Oh. No, I, don't, I, don't, I don't trust them. Yeah. I don't know what they're planning. Small hands. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, just grew up hearing how Christopher Reeve was a f***ing Superman. Yeah. He wound up in a wheelchair because of a damn horse. So I was like, that's enough for me. They can take out Superman. I'm not even Batman. You know? <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating 
Melon Serum. This next-generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Well, while we're on the topic of pain, <laughs> transition. We have to talk about the machine, the torture device that leaves Wesley mostly dead. It took Count Rugen half a lifetime to invent it. And for those who don't remember, the machine sucks away a year of life from the person based on the number of levels that the machine is set to. Like digital media. Poor <laughs> Wesley has the machine. Question. Yes. So is he back to his normal amount of life now that he's been resurrected? Or he just got the resurrection, but now he's still going to die in like a year? That's a great plot hole. How do we think that works? I, you know what? It's been so long since I've seen the whole movie. Well, cranking it up I've... to fifty kills him, right? But yeah. then they, well, they bring well, no, him... leaves him almost dead, mostly almost dead. dead, mostly dead. So they mostly dead. So yeah. So when he comes back to life, then is his is he no, back to full? Point. Is he great back point. to full? Is he back to pre machine strength, or is he just back to the brink of like? being alive at the threshold and now he has like uh, yeah like two years to live or something great questions i don't know goldman uh jamie can we get bill goldman on the phone jamie do you have a ouija board give us a glass <laughs> and a ouija board i need an old priest and yeah. a young priest 
that no, that's a that's a good that's a good plot hole. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Tweeted us. <laughs> uh so yes, yeah, so this machine that leaves Wesley mostly dead was actually built for a whole other movie. It was built for 1983's Never Say Never Again, a movie in which Sean Connery reprises his role as James Bond. But now we're we're gonna have a little James Bond corner moment here. Note how I didn't say that it was a Bond film. Due to not particularly interesting legal particularities, Never Say Never Again wasn't made by Eon Productions, which is the company that produces the official Bond movies. So Rock Never release. Say Never Again is a considered Bond canon. In fact, it's basically a remake of the 1966 Sean Connery Bond movie, Thunderball. But the toupee that Sean Connery wears in Never Say Never Again was rumored to be one of the most expensive hair pieces ever made at the time. I... I'm having a hard like time six bucks running that number <laughs> down, but I definitely remember hearing that. And um, I also didn't realize until this very morning that Sean Connery wore a hairpiece in every Bond movie post Goldfinger. Oh, and yeah. there's a, I, I didn't know that. I did yeah. not know that. There is a whole blog dedicated to the topic that I discovered this morning called Sean Connery's hairpiece page. <laughs> so what was it built for in that movie? I some kind of Bond villain uh, torture device, and they decided not to use it. it. It was rejected for some reason. I don't know why. And it wound up getting reused in The Princess Bride, which hmm. is wild. I mean, again, Princess Bride was shot in Shepard and Studios in England, which is where a lot of the Bond stuff was done. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, the machine in The Princess Bride was operated by the character known as the Albino, played by British comedian Mel Smith. And he didn't have a good time making this movie. Kind of, no, I think about it, I think the only person who didn't have a good time making this movie. The role required him to wear colored contact lenses. And unfortunately, he and the costume folks belatedly learned that he was allergic to the lens solution for his contacts. Oof. And as a result, he was in agony during the production and reportedly never watched the finished movie ever because he couldn't bear the memory. Yeah, he had Which, poison poured into his eyes all day. Uh, yeah, I mean, very clockwork orange. So that is sad. Heigl, <laughs> tell us a fun story. Take us to a different corner. Take us to a different place. Another corner of TMI, the TMI world we're inaugurating, called Andre the Giant's Farts. Giant farts. My, Tweeted us that. Yeah. My, my least favorite John Coltrane deep cut <laughs> is uh, Giant Farts. No, this bit is terrible. I can't believe that, you got me to fart giant steps just now. That's, that's the, the I don't know if that's the highest lowbrow joke. <laughs> or the lowest, lowest highbrow high reference you've had wow. there. Can you play giant farts in all 12 keys? Uh, did you go to Berkeley? Uh, <laughs> anyway, yes. Uh, we're going to talk about, for this fart corner, we're going to talk about the time Andre the Giant farted on the set of Princess Bride. A momentous occasion. Once once lost to the mists of history and thankfully resurfaced by the good folks over at Vulture. It was his first day of filming with Carrie Elwes and <laughs> Elwes described the incident, which he titled A Mighty Wind. That's good. Which That's is very good. Funny. Yeah. Andre, I should start by saying he was a gentle giant, the sweetest guy. And one day, the first day, actually, the first scene we had together... Rob Reiner said, okay, roll cameras, action. And I think my first words were, I'll fight you both together. I'll take you both apart. 
But as I was saying this, an enormous monumental fart starts to emit from Andre. It literally lasted 18 seconds. And he just sat there with a grin on his face. And I don't know if he was grinning out of relief or grinning at the humor of it, knowing that this was going to take a while. Literally everything shook and I just lost it. I couldn't believe it. As I started laughing, Andre started laughing. And at the end of the day, I apologized to Andre for laughing at his fart. And he said, it was a good one. Carrie dedicated three pages of his memoir to recounting this incident. He described the, uh, the event as a veritable symphony of gastric distress that roared for more than several seconds and shook the very foundations of the wood and plaster set where we were now grabbing onto out of sheer fear. The sonic resonance was so intense, I even observed our sound man remove his headphones to protect his ears. <laughs> Picturing On- like the scene of Titanic when the ship breaks in two <laughs> and everyone's just like hanging off to stuff. <laughs> uh, Andre had a good sense of humor about it. You know, Carrie went over to apologize and Andre replied, it's okay. My farts always make people laugh. This concludes giant farts. Uh <laughs> If I could fart John Coltrane's iconic solo to Giant Steps. No, I can't do it. I just don't have the dexterity. Few people do. No, there's not a lot of people know that. Uh, while we're on the touch, Jordan is rendered paralyzed by, by giant farts. Uh, the road rodent- committed to it so strongly. <laughs> I couldn't get you to do the damn Inigo Montoya voice, but got that. No, no, because you know what, Jordan, I, I, that's low hanging fruit, and I, the reader, the listeners, oh, they we deserve go, more. We, we, yeah, we deserve. They deserve more than that. They get giant farts. They don't get me <laughs> rereading one of the most well trodden movie lines of all time. But while we're on the topic of unsavory yet funny things, we've got to talk about the R O U S's, rodents of unusual size. They're giant rats. <laughs> folks they're just big big honking rats uh rob reiner did the vocal work for these characters but they were actually performers inside these costumes um 50 pounds of rubber latex fake fur and crime much like australia (laughs) the rouss were filled with criminals from their inception (laughs) uh no i'm i'm exaggerating apologies to our australian listeners there was apparently police drama on the while the princess bride was filming involving the rous actors you said there's two versions and you were unable to parse if these were separate incidences or just different tellings i think they're separate i'm pretty sure they're separate which is wild what hey man you make your living in a rat suit you're living that's life in the fast lane baby uh life in the fast lane Rob Reiner says on the day they were shooting the scene in the fire swamp where Wesley wrestles the rats. That's a tongue twister. Wow, yeah. The main rat performer, the one who was, quote, good with quick movements. (laughs) Are you the main rat performer who's good with quick movements? No, I'm the other guy. No, I'm the other guy. You must be the other guy. (laughs) I'm the rat (laughs) performer. What's the the Alec Baldwin? I'm the rap performer who's good with quick movements. (laughs) He does his job. You must be the other rap performer. I love that line so much. (laughs) Southie. You must Uh, be the other guys. You must be the other rap. That was Marky Mark. Oh, that's Marky Mark. Yeah, sorry. Uh... Rob, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so the sorry. main rat performer, Rat Guy A, we'll call him. 
Yeah. They're, they're probably cast. They're probably named in the credits. They are not. Yeah, I think I have them somewhere. Did you protect just... their names? Change their names to protect the innocent? Honestly, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rat Guy A, the quick movement guy, was nowhere to be found because he was in jail after getting into a massive fight with his wife the night before and burning down the kennel that they owned. No word on whether or not it was occupied at the time. I'm I'm guessing no. That, oh, that's, that's, that's fucked up. Yeah, so Rob found this out and bailed the guy out of jail. Uh, and then later on, a different rat performer. How many RUSs were there? Were there just two? So there's two rat guys or three rat guys? How many rat guys on this film? How many rat guys you got? <laughs> How many you need? The cigar chomping uh, executive comes and he's like, the rat guy budget on this movie is, is, is insane. Tell Rhina he gets two rat guys. He gets one guy with quick movements and he gets the other guy. The union, the rat guy union is killing me. <laughs> He's turning into Harvey Firestein. I feel like I lost the wow, I lost yeah. I lost the voice that I had for him earlier. Um so a different rat guy performer was pulled over for speeding and tried to get out of his ticket by telling the cop that he had a big job the next morning. You can't pull me over because I got to go play this giant rat. And the cop assumed that he was drunk and speeding because he figured only a drunk guy would say something like that and booked him for drunk driving. So this concludes your rat corner. Uh, speaking of nothing, some of the film was shot at Shepperton Studios in England, but much of the movie was filmed on location. The castle used for the film was Haddon Hall, which is not to be confused with the massive house that David Bowie and his pals rented in the early 70s. This is a different Haddon Hall. Uh, this one is a fortified country house built by William the Conqueror in 1086, for his illegitimate son, which is maybe the most English sentence you've ever had me read on this show. Yeah. It has been owned by the same family since 1597, because it's England, and uh, has been featured in three versions of Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth, and the film Lady Jane, starring Carrie Elwes, a.k.a. the role that got on The Princess Bride. Uh, they zhuzhed the exterior of the castle by adding some fake turrets to make it look a little more imposing, but they filmed most of the interior shots inside among the original uh, medieval furniture and tapestry, which helped because, you know, as you mentioned, not a well-funded production. Um, the location stuff is, is recalled fondly by the casting crew because they all stayed at the same hotel, which made it kind of a summer camp. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is married to Christopher Guest, uh, had a crock pot in their room, and they so they they would cook meals for fellow cast members and eat together. Imagine having a fish called Wanda era Jamie Lee Curtis making you crock pot meals. Man, I would yeah. I could just die right then and there. Chris Guest later told Entertainment Weekly, "There are a lot of times when you're on a movie on location and you're kind of a loner and you stay in your room. This was an uncommonly friendly gang of people." <laughs> Rob, <laughs> the common through line in this is how much everyone hates English cooking, which. I love you, English cooking. Well, you, you, you're you, buddy. Yeah. Best desserts in the world. Yeah, dessert. Sticky pudding? Yeah, dessert. No, I know dessert, but th these people put beans on toast. <laughs> Call it breakfast. Uh, Rob Reiner hated the local food so much, he had a hibachi grill installed in his hotel room so he could cook burgers and dogs for himself and the crew, making that a popular place to hang out as well. So between, you got Jamie Lee Curtis, you got Rob Reiner, and you got, so that's your continental, your American home style. <laughs> And then you got Andre the Giant driving to France and back for his for French food. Damn, they ate like kings. It's a great set. The movie's showdown between Inigo Montoya and Count Rugen, a.k.a. the Six-Fingered Man, takes place 
at Haddon Hall. And I just want to point out the fact that Christopher Guest also plays Nigel Tufnell in Spinal Tap, and he's the man whose amp famously goes to 11, and now he's playing the six-fingered man. I just think that's a that's a funny coincidence. Just because there's numbers involved? Numbers oh, that there's go, one, go there's one a number more. that exceeds. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah, good. Right? You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Thank you. Uh, Christopher Guest kept the six-finger glove, and he was very proud that his son would show it off to his friends whenever they came over, which hmm. I think is cute. Uh, during the fight rehearsal for this climactic fight scene, Manny Patankin got a little carried away. As we talked about earlier, this scene had a very personal meaning for him. He wasn't just fighting the fictional movie villain. He was slaying his father's cancer. And so he was really getting into it when he accidentally stabbed Christopher Guest in the thigh, which maybe is karmic payback for Christopher Guest knocking out Carrie Elwes with the butt of his sword. But yeah, Christopher Guest was pretty freaked out. And he told the fencing master who'd been training them all this time, I think Mandy's going to try to kill me when we do the take. So yeah, all that <laughs> stuff I learned, I'm basically just going to throw that out and just try to defend myself now. And my favorite part about this fight scene is that Christopher Guest found himself involuntarily doing the sword sounds with his mouth as they fought. And eventually Rob Reiner was like, all right, cut, cut. He goes over to him. Chris, it's okay. We're going to put the sounds in and post. <laughs> You're kind I of love ruining. So, I know. It's so good. It's like when, uh, what's her name? Uh, Laura Durham is in Star Wars and they, you can see her on camera making the pew pew noises when she's shooting her laser gun. Laura Dern was in Star Wars? Yeah. The most recent one. Oh. Like the, like the oh. shitty, the shitty, God, you have to say the shitty medium ones and then the shitty new ones. Uh, yeah, she's in the shitty new ones. But yeah, there's a scene where she like bursts into a room and starts firing her pistol and you can see her lips going pew pew. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I'm glad they left that and didn't didn't like CGI, yeah, like CGI her out, lips like, shut. Uh, yeah. Wesley Snipes eyes in uh, <laughs> oh, that was Wesley Snipes. That's Blade, right? yeah. that's Blade 3. Yeah. Yes. He refused to open his eyes on the set so they CGI ghastly open eyes onto his eyelids. It's so scary. If we, I'll do Stand By Me for you if you'll do Blade for me. We'll put some time between, uh, between Rob Reiner movies. We should definitely do those both. Hell yeah. We should do, we gotta do some, maybe, maybe it's not Stand By Me, but we gotta do some River Phoenix movie. I just think he's so interesting to me, I think. River Phoenix? Yeah. I think he's interesting. Mm, or interesting. Dead. Dead's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, What's interesting about him? He's I don't pretty. Know. No, he well, he grew up in that weird cult with the rest yeah. of them. Yeah, and I thought, still think he was an incredibly talented actor, and he also didn't really seem to give a damn about acting that much. Like he really was into more into music, which is interesting to me. And yeah. I don't know. I just any kind of unfulfilled potential is interesting to me. Like lost albums that were never finished, and and things like that are always really interesting to me. And I guess same with actors who. James Dean being probably the most obvious example. People that like could have done so much and it's interesting and sad too to think about what they could have done and how they could have changed the medium in Yeah, but James ways. Dean was like a dedicated actor. River Phoenix was just pretty. I think he was very talented. My Own Private Idaho? It's a great movie. He's got that annoying brother. Yeah. Just doing the most. They did have a big family, and that was part of the reason. I mean, yeah, I mean, his backstory is just so fascinating how, like, he supported his entire massive family with his acting gigs. And yeah, he had a lot on his shoulders, and I feel like you could see that in his performance. Yeah, no, I don't care. Uh, 
I just didn't see any of those movies, so I just like I don't you know. Oh, Explorers is great. You never saw Explorers as a kid? Nope. Oh my god, it's incredible. It's this movie where these three kids make a spaceship out of a a tilt a whirl that they find at a junkyard. It's so cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. They were in the Children of God. Wasn't that the same yeah. cult that the guy from Girls was in? That I don't know. Children yeah. of God, I thought, got busted. Yeah, a guy from the band Girl. He was in Children of God. I did things I won't talk about just to survive. That was his pull quote. But speaking of things that make me uncomfortable, Count Rugen's death in this movie <laughs> is actually a lot tamer than it was in the book, where Inigo cuts out the man's heart and then he dies of fright at the sight of it, which is a little too much for PG. But uh, that's a hell of a parting line, though. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. That's mm. a hell of a line delivered from a, a man who meant it. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful scene. There's a lost ending to The Princess Bride, which in all honesty, mm. it's probably for the best. As it stands, the movie ends with Peter Falk's grandfather character finishing the story. And as he gets up to leave, his grandson, who you'll recall, didn't really give a damn about the story initially, asks him to come back the next day and read the book to him again. And the grandfather replies with, as you wish, which in the world of the film is code for I love you. It's a very simple, touching ending. But originally, Rob Reiner shot a scene where Fred Savage goes to the window after his grandfather leaves, and he sees Inigo, Fezzik, Wesley, and Buttercup sitting outside on horses. And they wave and smile at him before riding off into the, I think, literal sunset. But Rob Reiner thought this was just a little too cutesy and dropped the idea, which, again, I think is probably good. Before we finish talking about the production, we have one more Andre the Giant is giving Robin Williams a run for his money as the nicest guy in the world story. On the last day of shooting, the cast stuck around on the set for over five hours while every crew member and their families, in some cases, came by and waited in line like children at Disneyland to stand with Andre the Giant and have their photograph taken with him. He had his picture taken with every single person that asked on set that day, even though I'm sure on some level he found it extremely humiliating and resented all the attention. But he did it anyway because it made people happy. He did it for us. Sweet, sweet man. <laughs> you know who's not a sweet, sweet man? Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure he's fine. The hatred uh, of Mark Knopfler. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I know nothing about them personally. I hate Dire Straits. I think they are my least favorite band. There's something so clinical and cold and soulless about it. I just I don't like it. Um, I didn't realize this though. The music for the Princess Bride was done by Mark Knopfler. But you know, despite everything I just said, Mark Knopfler gets <laughs> points with me because he, like I'm sure all rock stars of a certain age, is a big fan of Spinal Tap, and apparently he semi-jokingly only agreed to take this job if Rob Reiner agreed to put a reference to Spinal Tap in The Princess Bride, which he did. If you look closely at the scene shot in the little boy's bedroom, you can see the USS Orocov. 4B baseball cap that Rob Reiner wore as Marty DeBerge in Spinal Tap. Yeah, man. <laughs> sure, man. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, man. man. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some reports say that Rob couldn't find the original hat and this one was a replica, but Mark Knopfler apparently appreciated all the effort and did the film. I don't remember anything about the music in this. Isn't it all like, it's kind of like it's Renaissance like light? Yeah. Yeah, it's like loot. <laughs> you know, Sting wasn't available? It's not the USS Oral Sea, by the way. It's the USS Coral Sea, which makes 
Oh, that was a typo? Oh. <laughs> you want to take that again? That soundtrack no. was... Uh, <laughs> that soundtrack, uh, the song Storybook Love uh, from it got, a, got an Academy Award nom. What say Princess you? Princess Bride? Yeah. Best I, original song. I Wow. I have no memory of that song at all. Co-written with Did, uh, Mink DeVille. Who's Mink DeVille? Oh, he's like a a very very weird. Um, he was like a CBGB uh, uh, contemporary, but he was like way more in- inspired by like Doc Palmas and and Doctor John and and Alan Toussaint. So he was like had all these like sort of seventies era like punk bands, but it was he was always playing like uh, uh, essentially like swamp pop. Um, and in later on became like a, you know, more of a very, uh, traditional, like roots rock guy, but Doc Palmas said about him, Mick DeVille knows the truth of a city street and the courage in a ghetto love song and the harsh reality in his voice and phrasing is yesterday, today, and tomorrow timeless in the same way that loneliness, no money and troubles find each other and never quit for a minute. Damn. I live on the corner of Doc Palmas uh, Memorial Way out in Brooklyn. I guess he lived on the around the corner from where I live. Huh. Yeah, I guess I guess Mink Deville had stopped going by Mink. He was going by Willie Deville. Mink Deville was the name of the band, and he recorded an album called Miracle in London with Mark Knopfler producing. And um, Knopfler heard the song, and this is an interview with him that from 1996. He said Knopfler heard Storybook Love and asked if I knew about this movie he was doing. It was a Rob Reiner film about a princess and a prince. Well, strike one. The song was about the same subject matter as the film, so we submitted it to Reiner, and he loved it. About six or seven months later, I was half asleep when the phone rang. It was the Academy of Arts and Sciences with the whole spiel. I hung up on them. They called back, and my wife answered the phone. She came in to tell me that I was nominated for Storybook Love. Before I knew it, I was performing on the award show with Little Richard. It was the year of Dirty Dancing, and they won. So that's the story of uh, your personal enemy, Mark Knopfler, and uh, Willie DeVille writing... Uh, an Academy Award nominated or arranging, re- recording an Academy Award na- nominated song for uh, Princess Bride soundtrack. Can't believe you're just going to gloss over it. Did not know that. Uh, marketing. <laughs> I know. I, I've, I've set you up. Segway. Zero times in this episode. I'm sorry. Though the cast and crew of The Princess Bride were well aware that they made something special, the studio was not. They were confused about how to market the film. To start, the title sounded like a rom-com, making it a tough sell for adult males and kids. As Reiner later said to HitFlix.com, it was hard to categorize, and I think the title also scared people. It sounds like a children's fairy tale or something. When it came time to assemble a poster, the marketing geniuses at Fox went with the image of Peter Falk reading to Fred Savage in bed, which is absolutely the worst possible decision you could make given that this film is jam-packed with iconic characters and beautiful people and you go with the wonder years kid and one-eyed willie peter falk (laughs) apparently that photo that 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 poster art was inspired by the 1922 painting daybreak by maxfield Parrish, which later served as, as an influence for michael jackson's video you are not alone with then wife lisa marie presley uh, the trailer for Princess Bride was apparently so bad it was yanked from theaters almost immediately. Rob Reiner was on the phone constantly with the head of Fox, Barry Diller, furious, saying, This is terrible. We've got a movie that everybody loves, but we can't get anybody to come. He remembers screaming at him, Barry, I don't want to have a Wizard of Oz. Because when Wizard of Oz came out, it was a disaster. Nobody liked it, didn't do well. And Barry said to him, Rob, 
Don't let anybody ever hear you say that. You'd be so happy to have a Wizard of Oz. By which he meant, it takes time for oddball movies to develop an audience. And that was pretty much what happened. Princess Bride was not a success when it premiered in 87. Of all the movies released that year, it ranked 41st in domestic grosses, bringing in just $30.8 million. The number one film that year? Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> Brought in $167.7 million. Wow. Oh, the 80s. That was the power of Steve Gutenberg, though, right? You ever see Short Circuit? No. Oh, that's a great movie. A uh, uh, military robot gets struck by lightning and gains sentience. And But does uh, it become whimsical or murderous? Whimsical. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as is so often the case with movies of this uh, ilk, Willy Wonka, Hocus Pocus, Donnie Darko, Fight Club, etc., it when Princess Bride went on to become a smash in home release. The film has been embraced by several generations as a beloved classic, uh, probably obvious to anyone who whose ears perked up uh, <laughs> when we started going into this episode. Some of the more unusual facts about this legacy. Uh, it is apparently a favorite of the Mormons. Chris Sarandon, uh, who played Prince Humperdinck and, you know, gave Susan Sarandon her stage name in the 60s, uh, told the story of being in Salt Lake City, uh, where he somehow, for some reason, met the Attorney General of Utah, uh, who told Chris Sarandon, do you know that in every home in Utah, there is a video, a DVD, and a Blu-ray of The Princess Bride? It's the most popular movie in the state of Utah. Sure, man. Okay, man. Uh, Chris Sarandon believes the Mormons love the film because it has good values to it, and it's a message about love. But the power of the, pr the, power of the Princess Bride transcends Christian sex. Uh, it is also a favor of the Pope. Friend of the pod. Carrie Elwes once had the opportunity to meet Pope John Paul II, who greeted him by saying, You were the actor, the one from The Princess and the Bride. Very good film. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> Carrie also meant, that guy was Polish, right? Should we just do a Polish yeah. joke in there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carrie met Bill Clinton, who claimed to have seen the movie over a hundred times and was just tickled. <laughs> Probably don't use the word tickled with, oh! when Bill Clinton's in the room. Uh, when Carrie offered to send an autographed script to Chelsea. And then there was the Iraq War veteran who told Carrie that his commanding officer would send the men out on dangerous patrols with, have fun storming the castle. And the soldier added, that did a lot for morale. Uh, Is that sarcasm? I, I am reading it as sarcasm, but it might yeah. not have been. That did yeah, a lot for know. morale. <laughs> This is the best one, though. Once Rob Reiner was approached by an extreme skier who told him, this movie saved my life. She had been trapped in an avalanche, and to keep herself, help keep herself awake until she was rescued, she recited the whole movie from memory. But, arguably, Reiner's most memorable encounter with a Princess Bride fan occurred outside a New York restaurant. A limo pulled up to the entrance, and a New York crime boss and famous rat, back to the rat corner, John Gotti, stepped out flanked by half a dozen henchmen taking notice of Reiner Gotti turned to him and said you killed my father prepare to die as you may expect hearing one of the most inf infamous mobsters in the world saying that to you was jarring uh, and Reiner didn't get the reference to his own film until Gotti burst out laughing and said I love that movie The Princess Bride now I gotta go rat on a bunch of people <laughs> I love uh, uh, that John Mulaney bit where he talks about uh, like his his mom went to college with Bill Clinton and they like met at some event like 
decades later and and uh she was like oh i'm not sure if you remember me. like like she came up to bill clinton afterwards and bill clinton goes oh hey arlene <laughs> and then milady's punchline is because bill clinton never forgets a bitch <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i don't know how i would feel but i i wouldn't i wouldn't want bill clinton to remember my mom's name <laughs> no That's, yeah yeah okay i'm glad we're in agreement of that well anyway all right where the f- are we all right we're almost there Well, as with most good things, Hollywood has tried to ruin The Princess Bride with a remake. But we were saved from this fate by a fan revolt. (laughs) Rumors of a possible Princess Bride remake began to spread across the internet in 2010, and the backlash was so extreme that the remake rumblings immediately ceased. That's great, honestly. Right? (laughs) Yeah, that gives me such hope. Uh, This project, it was never formally announced, so there's a possibility that it was just purely a rumor, but... I kind of get the sense that the producer was testing the waters and then got scared off when he saw how pissed fans were about any discussion of remaking it. Honestly, I wish that would happen more often. I I don't think it will. They can't forestall it forever. I mean, in this age, it's probably inevitable that we're going to get to it. I keep hearing that The Rock has his big, meaty eyes set on Big Trouble in Little China. Second, you know, I'd say half a notch down from unnecessary remake are... Mostly unnecessary Broadway musical adaptations, and it looks like we're going to get one that we didn't ask for, for The Princess Bride. In the spring of 2019, Disney assigned Bob Martin and Rick Elsie to adapt the book for a Broadway musical with a proposed score by David Yazbek. And these plans were obviously delayed in the wake of the pandemic. But in May 2020, the president of Disney Theatric Productions said in a memo to his staff that they were still in the midst of developing it. Uh, Weirdly, an abridged version of The Princess Bride, a musical version, had been performed by the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2001. But at the moment, I've been unable to find an update on that. Although the last time we said something like that was for Mean Girls, like a day or two after we published the episode, they made a big announcement about uh, the Mean Girls musical. So Google it, folks. Yeah, they really f***ed us on that one. I know. And then I think the woman that... uh, had been saying kind of not nice things about Tina Fey because she felt like Tina Fey didn't appropriately credit her, the woman who wrote the book that Mean Girls was based on, uh, I think, like, went big and possibly filed an actual lawsuit against her, I think. Really? Yeah, I think so. Damn, our timing is off. I just Googled this this morning. Mean Girls author takes legal action against Paramount, slams Tina Fey, yeah. Hmm. All right. Studio allegedly told Wiseman that there have been no net profits from the franchise. Oh, it was all Hollywood yeah. accounting thing. Yeah. Despite spurring a Broadway musical and upcoming film remake. Oh, yeah, they're doing a remake, too. I forgot about that. Terrible. So can't while have there was nice no things. Prince- we can't have nice things, no. So while there was no Princess Bride musical during the darkest days of the pandemic, we retreated to something a little different, a little more homemade. I'm referring to the fan-made recreation of The Princess Bride that was produced and sort of directed by Jason Reitman, the guy who did Juno and Up in the Air. Thank you for smoking. He enlisted the help of a truly insane cast of celebrities to film scenes from the movie on their phones while during lockdown. And then he assembled them together into something that loosely approximated a film. But because each of these actors only shot a few scenes, you had multiple people playing the same character. Wesley is played by stars including Common, Chris Pine, and Jack Black. Some buttercups include Tiffany Haddish, Jennifer Garner, and Joe Jonas, who did a gender-swapping thing with his wife, Sophie Turner, who played yet another Wesley. Josh Gad plays the little boy being reluctantly read the story in bed. 
Hugh Jackman plays the villainous Prince Humperdinck wearing a dim sum steamer as his crown. And uh, due to the pandemic, screen kisses were limited to real life couples who lived together, which I thought was cute. Uh, crowd scenes were fleshed out with Lego characters. And one of the rodents of unusual size was played by a pet corgi. Venizzi, hmm. uh, the Sicilian. Was the corgi, was played had the, the corgi been arrested the night before <laughs> for arson, for, for burning down its own kennel? <laughs> Uh, Vizzini, the Sicilian, was played both by Patton Oswalt, who I can imagine being very good in that, and Rain Wilson. Pedro Pascal and Keegan-Michael Keane both take turns as Inigo Montoya. Jason Siegel does Andre the Giant. And there are also appearances by Angie Serkis, Elijah Wood, Beanie Feldstein, Taika Watiti, David Spade, John Hamm, Stephen Merchant, Mackenzie Davis, Nicholas Braun, Don Johnson, Ari Gaynor, Thomas Ledden, Zoe Deutsch, and many, many, many more. And this homemade Princess Bide was distributed on the short-form content platform Quibi, the brainchild <laughs> of enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I need to talk about Jeffrey Katzenberg for a minute. So, right, folks, I want to tell you a story. This has just happened to me the other day. It's fresh in my mind. I was, I was out of town for a week or so, and unfortunately, I was out of town when my dear friend Alex Heigl was in New York City, and even though I wasn't here to hang out with him, I gave him the keys to my apartment, and I, I returned back a few days ago, and I found uh, two things on my kitchen counter. One, Heigl left me the best gift I could possibly receive. It was a framed 8x10 autographed glossy of my beloved Michael Caine, which is now hanging on my front door. Do you ever figure I, out what, I, what film it was from? No, I actually asked a friend who's a film archivist and see if he knows. Wow. Uh, Harry okay. Eskin, if you're listening, uh, please let us know. We're wondering. So, so that's one. And then I, I go, there's a package also on my kitchen counter, and I open it, and it is... An autographed 8x10 glossy of Jeffrey Katzenberg from dear friend of the pod, Phil. I don't want to, I won't give his last name because I don't want to embarrass him, but dear, 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 the, the, the goodest friend of the pod uh, with a note saying congratulations on 100 episodes. So I had in my hands a signed autographed picture of Michael Caine and Jeffrey Katzenberg. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was a great day for me. So now- um, The yin and yang of your personal exactly. content universe. Yes. <laughs> So Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, I got to find a good spot for that. I got to like, I mean, I really should just like put it on the other side of my door to deter <laughs> visitors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, Jeffrey Katzenberg, still enemy of the pod, despite my tremendous gift. Uh, Phil, if you're listening, I know you're listening. You're, you're one of the biggest fans of this show. This is not over. We will, uh, <laughs> I will re respond in kind soon. But yeah, the, funding this handmade Princess Bride fan remake is arguably the coolest thing Jeffrey Katzenberg has ever done. He backed the project, paid for the rights to stream it on Quibi in small chapter-sized installments. And considering this is all for charity, he made a million-dollar donation to the World Central Kitchen, which equals about 100,000 meals, which is wonderful. Uh, writer William Goldman unfortunately died in 2018, but it had the full approval of his estate. Mark Knopfler permitted the use of his music. Rob Reiner not only approved of the project, he even stepped in to play the grandfather role, which is very sweet. And it also features the final performance of Carl Reiner, Rob's dad, who plays Rob's grandfather in this movie. Uh, it's in the very last scene. It's the very last thing he ever shot, just, I think, days before he died. Uh, and the film is dedicated to his memory. 
And you know what? I think that's actually a beautiful note to end on, this display of fandom crossing all sorts of generational and cultural boundaries. People coming together during an exceedingly dark time to celebrate this jubilant movie. And all that time and effort and passion, I think that says more about the true legacy of The Princess Bride than any pithy comment that I could ever make. The love that people have for this movie is truly inconceivable. Does that not work? Because that's actually an appropriate use of that word. No, I think that's good. Okay, good. Yeah, I think you got it. Well, folks, thank you for scaling the cliffs of insanity with us. <laughs> of our own making. <laughs> that's so much better than mine. Uh, this has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Nerd Wallet. Finance smarter. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.